It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's today's special guest, Elijah Robertson. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning again. What a wonderful opportunity we have again to gaze upon the things of Christ and to fix our eyes this morning towards our Lord and Savior. Why don't we go ahead and stand real quick as we read God's Word today. His Word is truth, and it's the only thing that is non-negotiable. If you turn with me to John 17, 24, that will be our text for today. John 17, 24, this is found in Jesus' high priestly prayer, and it's a beautiful verse. It says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let's read that one more time. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, I love this text. I love what this text tells me about Jesus. And I love what this text tells me about God. Why don't we go ahead and open up in prayer. Father, I thank you again for this opportunity Lord, with a specific purpose to stop and to gaze upon you, to remind ourselves of reality, to remind ourselves of the truth. And I trust that we will be encouraged, we will be comforted, we will be provoked, that we will leave this place by your grace in, in a, a new desire, a, a, a growing in our knowledge of who you are, and placing our confidence and our faith in submission to the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We declare you today and no man. May Jesus Christ be praised. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. As we get into today's message, the, the text that I chose may seem a little bit, we're reconnecting we the dots, but I think it'll become clear as we move on. And I said, I love this text. I love what it tells me about Jesus. I love what it tells me about God. And I have one simple objective for today. One simple objective, and it goes something along these lines. It says, God's person is his definitive reality. God's person is his definitive reality. So my, my objective, what I hope that we walk away with, is simply this. That the person of God is the, def the definitive reality of his being. The way that we know God is first and foremost and primarily through his personhood. I've titled this, Where to Begin Thinking About God. 
Where do I start in my knowing of God? Recently, I've had a bit of a shift in my own mind, in my own heart of where do I start in thinking about God? A.W. Tozer rightly said that what comes into your mind or into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when we decide, you know, to think about deity, to think about the creator, what enters into our cognitive space there is the most important thing about us. And that that makes sense, right? What we believe about God is going to infiltrate and going to impact every decision that we make. It's going to have implications for what we value. That premise, that underheld value will always impact everything else that we believe. So where do we begin thinking about God? And again, I want to just cause us to glimpse, to beckon us to the reality that we begin thinking about God first and foremost from His persons. That's where we begin. You know, it's... Really, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity somewhat today. Last time I was here, we talked about God being spirit and the importance and the implications of that. Today, I want to talk a little bit, just just a tiny bit about his persons. You know, the doctrine of the Trinity in our day is a neglected doctrine. It's one that's not talked about. It's one that most evangelicals affirm. Most evangelicals will say, yes, I believe in the Trinity. If you ask them what that means, most of them probably couldn't define it, but... Yeah, we're Trinitarians. And yet, it's something that, I don't know about you, but I don't find preached on much, taught on much. In fact, I think most people view it as something that we believe is evangelicals, but it's not necessarily an impactful thing. It's not something that we ought to really hold too strongly. It's not worth that. But you know, that's exactly the opposite. Do you realize that the purpose for creation is tied up in the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, maybe I should define Trinity before I go on, actually. When we say Trinity, what we're basically doing is answering the question, who and what is God? I'll say that again. When I say the Trinity, I'm answering a question. I'm answering the question, who and what is God? And the simple answer that's given to that is God is three persons, one essence. God is three persons. And when we say three persons, what we're speaking of is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In one essence. And when we say that, this is what we talked about last time, but in John chapter 4 we see that God is a spirit. God is spirit. His essence is spirit. But in that one essence, there are three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we maintain that here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. It is a mystery. It is powerful. It is deep. But it's not something to run from. Because as I was just saying a minute ago, do you realize that the whole purpose for creation is tied up in the Trinitarian persons whom we will talk about today. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that your very salvation is tied up 
in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that Trinitarian reality. Do you realize that not only is our crea- the creation and our purpose and our salvation, but your future hope is all tied up in the persons of the Trinity. I, I repeat, it's a neglected doctrine, but it's one that is so important. And in my own mind and heart, I've had a shift in thinking about where do I start in thinking about God? And when, when we start at the right place, which I want to maintain today, is with the persons of God, which I want to maintain and promote that Jesus taught us to start here by starting here himself. That this does a few things for us. Number one, it shows us that there's nothing arbitrary, first of all, in God, and there's nothing arbitrary in this creation. You know, like God didn't just sit up there in heaven and go, you know, I think I'll, I'll make a standard for these cre- creatures I'm making. And I, let's put in, you shall not covet. Yeah, that's a good one. God wasn't just up in heaven one day and saying, you know, I, I think they shouldn't commit adultery. Let's just have them be faithful. I mean, you think about it, why, why that? Why would that be a standard God requires of us? But when we go to the doctrine of the Trinity, it becomes very clear. It is all tied up in his persons. It is all tied up in who he is. So there's nothing arbitrary in God, and there's nothing arbitrary in what he has done. Isn't that wonderful? I think sometimes Christians walk around and say, well, we need to do these things, and, but they're not exactly sure why. Or how about this? We'll talk about this a little bit later, but love. God is love. But then you have people who write books like uh, Love Wins. And what they're really saying is that love is so powerful that, that, every, that God in the end will make sure everyone is happy and saved. Or we, people write other books that say, you know, God's end purpose for humanity is that we are happy. Because before there was ever a fall, God said it is not good. For man to be alone. The happiness of his creation was first and foremost in God's mind. And the LGBTQ community has run with that. But you know, I can understand why why we might do that. Be careful. Hear me out. I can understand why we might say that. If we don't start in our thinking of God from his Trinitarian reality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in one essence. So today, I want to make a case that we start rightly thinking about God because it's not that those other people weren't thinking about God when they decided that love was his definitive reality and ended in a place that we all know that can't quite be biblical. It can't quite be right. But they were thinking about God. I think they were thinking about God in the wrong place. And that, as well, they may have been predisposed to a certain outcome as well. How many times have I been guilty of that? So let's be really careful. Where should we start? Well, I want to submit to you that Jesus taught us to start here in thinking about God. This is where he started. But before we do that, let's talk about some wrong places to start. Number one would be a uh, humanistic viewpoint of thinking about God. 
Right, that, that's saying that God is like me, that I take my surroundings and the, I, the, the, the concepts that we know and, and hear and we take those and then we say that must be what God is like. And I think all of us in this room would say, no, 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 that's wrong. <laughs> we don't start there. But many, many, many of us do and it's, it's a trap that we fall into if we're not being intentional. We begin to think about God from our own humanistic perspective. Uh, but let me remind you what it says in Psalm 50, 21 through 22. It says, these things hast thou done. Now God is re- speaking here. And I kept silence. But th- thou thoughtest that I was altogether such and one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye who forget God. So the end result of thinking about God from a humanistic perspective is to forget who God is. We will and are doomed to think about God than from our perspective. Another place, and I think probably more of us might, might be guilty for this. Let's put it this way. I am. And this is where my changing and my thought pattern has, has had an effect here. It's, it's changed. We get this long list of wonderful attributes that are true of God. It's not that they're not true. They're absolutely true. And that's where I've usually started. When I begin to think about God, I start with the, the non-created one, a saity, the one who is self-existing, self-sufficient creator. And then I move from there and I begin to think about uh, maybe his eternality. Maybe his uh, omnipotence and his omniscience. His omnipresence. And, and I, this, this, this amazing, uh, glorious thinking. I mean, it's, it's powerful, right? It's, it's elaborate. It, it makes me feel small and it's right. It's right. But I don't think that's where we start. And let me see if I can submit an idea of why this is maybe the wrong place to start. Even though these are absolutely true of God. And let me say this. We must know God through his attributes. We must know God through those things. That is his revealed, uh, his revelation of his nature and character to us. So I must know him through the fact that he is a sadie, the fact that he's omnipotent, the fact that he is omniscient and all these things. That's where we... Where we get the fullness of our understanding. But listen to what Karl Barth said. Now, Karl Barth was a theologian uh, even during the time of Hitler. And he says this He says, Perhaps you recall how when Hitler used to speak about God, now Hitler used to speak about God, isn't that interesting? He called him the Almighty. But it is not the Almighty who is God. We cannot understand from the standpoint of a supreme concept of power who God is. I'm going to say that one more time. We cannot understand from the standpoint, so this viewpoint, this perspective, we cannot understand from the standpoint of a supreme concept of power who God is. So what he's saying is, if we start with the concept of, a, of this abstract attribute, in this sense it's omnipotence, we can't understand who God is. And the man who calls the Almighty God misses God in the most terrible way. Wow. Isn't God omnipotent? He is the Almighty, right? Yeah, yeah. 
And Carl Bart is saying, if you start there, if that is your lens, you will miss God in the most terrible way. Now listen to what else he says. He says, for the Almighty is bad as power in itself is bad. The Almighty means chaos, evil, the devil. We could not better describe and define the devil than by trying to think this idea of a self-based, free, sovereign ability. Wow. A characteristic, an attribute that is true of God's nature could just as well be used to describe the enemy. Perhaps this will make this a little bit more clear. Do you remember in Genesis 3 when the devil came to Eve and he brought a deception? Do you remember what he said? I don't have the verse here, but it's something like this. He says, the Lord knows the day you eat of this fruit, you will be as God's knowing good and evil. Now, there's a lot of lies that have just been told. A lot of lies about God. A lot of lies about humanity. But do you realize that something else the enemy did? Was he literally stripped the personhood of God from him. All of a sudden, Godness is to have an abstract thing. In this case, it's knowledge. The devil is saying, if you have this abstract thing called knowledge, you will have godness. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's to be like God is to know good and evil. You have an abstract attribute means that you can be or have the quality of godness. That's exactly what Karl Barth is saying right here. He's saying, no, 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 no. That's exactly what the enemy did right in the beginning. He stripped the personhood of God from him and made God an abstract attribute. Is God all knowledge? Is he omniscient? Oh, yes. But that's not where we start. You ever notice Jesus didn't walk around going, and the uncreated one, him who is self-existent, the omniscient one, you don't find that in the Gospels at all. Because there's a better place to start. What's wrong with starting with my list of attributes? If we're not careful, we cling to one or the other, whatever it might be, and we end up with what I like to call a rogue attribute. It's defining everything else. That's not how things work. But friends, if we start with the personhood of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, then that defines everything else. And I want to submit to you today that the definitive reality of God is not that he's all-powerful. It's not that he's love. It's not that he's holy. Those are powerful and defining. But the definitive reality is that he is Trinity. That he's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in one essence. 
And when we start there, it balances everything else. It qualifies. And this is what it does. It not only defines rightly what omnipotence is, but it confines omnipotence. Now, I'm being redundant. I know if you use the word define, automatically you're confining things. But I don't think Americans think that way. <laughs> I, I, don't think we, I think we just think of a dictionary definition. But do you realize that when I define something, it confines it to its certain uh, characteristics, its certain principles, if you will. And God's person is the definitive reality of his being. And it tells me what love is more rightly. It explains omnipotence and power more correctly. And it gives comfort and joy to the Christian. <clears throat> when we can turn our descriptive of God around and it be deity, that's when we know we started in the right place. Like Karl Barth said, the Almighty is, God is Almighty, but the Almighty is what? Not God. This is often talked about, but the Bible says God is love. But we cannot turn that around and say that love is God. God is holy, but we cannot turn that around and say holiness is God. I mean, what do you think? That, that doesn't make any sense. Morality is God. Transcendence is God. No, 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 no. God is a person. Let's, let's look at this. Let's take a glimpse into the Trinity, into God's being. And why, I'm going to read just some different scriptures where Jesus and uh, some of the epistles and apostles are talking about Christ, are talking about God. And I want you to keep your ears open to thinking about Trinity and how they have been from eternity past. Okay? You and I usually start right here. This is all I know. So I start from creation and I kind of, come out from creation. Let's, let's try to catch notes in these scriptures of who and what and how God was before eternity, or from eternity past, before creation. God is first and foremost a person, not a conglomeration of attributes. Everything he does is defined and confined by who he is as a person. Let's begin. Let's go start with our text. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory you have given me. Look what he says here. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I love what this text tells me about God. The Father delights in the Son. Did you catch that? The Father from eternity past, before he ever created creation, has been delighting and loving and pouring his pleasure upon his Son. Why? Because he is so pleased with his Son. This is not a father who's loving a son as a role, right? It's not God saying, you know, this creation, I'm going to make these people, they can't see pure spirit, so here's what we're going to do. You play the son, I'll play the father, and, and that'll kind of give them an idea of what love is. No, 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 no. As we read more, you'll see that's an impossibility uh, to, to believe that. It is absolute error. It's erroneous. It makes no sense. God the Father is loving God the Son as a person from before you and I were ever brought into being or anything in creation. 
By the way, that's really wonderful for us, that from eternity past, God has been loving his son. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, now this is Jesus' baptism, but have you ever stopped and thought about this next phrase? He's baptized, and God the Father speaks from heaven. This is a Trinitarian passage, by the way. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 15.9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You know that's all we need to do is abide in the love of Christ. But let me ask you, if it's just a figurative thing, if it's just something trying to explain to us something more about God, and it's not really God the Father... Loving the Son, you and I should be worried about how Christ will love us. But if it's real, if it's what they've done from before creation and eternity past, the one who inhabits eternity has always been pouring his love on his Son, and the Son has always been receiving that and responding to that love, and the Holy Spirit has been uh, uh, pr- promoting and working. That. Think about Romans 5. Just if we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit real quick. What does it say? That the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a part of this whole thing, shedding this wonderful love from eternity past within the Trinity. Then you and I can truly abide in Christ's love because the Father has truly loved the Son. And he says, as a father, what does he say in John 15, 9? As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Just abide in my love. Just stay here. Oh, do you see how the Trinity is wrapped up in everything? The persons of God? And again, we're not going to do an exhaustive thing on the Trinity. It, there's so many more things, but I, pieces to this. So much more to be said, but I just want to make the case that here's where we start if we're going to rightly think about who God is. Matthew 17.5 says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud, this is the mountain transfiguration, overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Friends, from all these texts, we can see a few things. The Father loves His Son. He is pleased. He is satisfied with His Son. He loves God the Son so much that he has given all things to the Son. This is not an illustration, but actual love of a person. This is who God is. This is the most definitive reality of knowing who God is. Let's do a few more, but we'll take some verses selected more from the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. So in John 17, 1, And 3 and 5, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Why? That the Son may glorify you. Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Look at what he says in John 4.35. Jesus said to them, my food, like my sustenance, what, what keeps me, isn't, isn't all this other stuff. It isn't obviously even just material food, but he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 14.31. But I do as the Father has commanded me so the, that the world may know that I love the Father. Wow. Let's read, read one more. John 14, 10, 4, uh, 14 through 15. We'll start with 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. And then look what he says in 18. I love this. No one takes my life. But I lay it down of my own accord. Let me ask you, why would he do that? Because the son is so delighting in the love of the father for him. It is his meat to do the father's will. He repeatedly said, I do nothing, nothing. But what the father tells me, what the father is doing, Are you getting a glimpse into the Trinitarian reality, the Trinitarian fellowship that was from eternity past? This is where we start to rightly think about God. One more scripture, Luke 10, 21 to 22. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Speaking of Jesus. Did you hear that? In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to the little children. uh, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. That's not an abstract illustration. No, it was handed over by the Father to the Son. Real persons. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Let me ask you, how did Jesus rejoice through the Holy Spirit? We haven't talked much about the Holy Spirit, but that in Scripture, it seems to be a chief way that He works, stoking the love, like even in our hearts, right? We see here that Jesus, at this point, in the incarnate second person Trinity, rejoiced in God through the Holy Spirit. Who was given the Spirit without measure? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. And how is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts? Oh, oh, yeah, by the Holy Spirit. Wow. There's so much more, but all I want is for us to get an idea of this Trinitarian fellowship. And I want to make the case that this is where we start. Why? Because this defines and confines everything else we believe about God. Nothing is arbitrary when you begin to look at God and you begin to start from the vantage point that he is Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in one essence. Let's talk about that. This means that God is first and foremost a person. And we see, I don't know if you started noticing it, but there's some quick takeaways we can take from the scriptures we read. This fellowship of the Trinity is marked by life, is marked by love. Isn't that amazing? 
by, by life and love. And there's one more thing. Selflessness. There's no self. The Father who is the originator delights in the Son and glorifies the Son and gives all things in His hand. The Son's like delighting in the Father and wanting to say, I just, I'm going to glorify you. Oh, Lord, will you glorify me? What was His reason? That I may glorify you. Perfect selflessness. Perfect love and fellowship. Now, Look what Michael Reeves says here. He says, Since God is before all things a father and not primarily a creator or ruler, all his ways, now he's speaking specifically the person of the father. This is important. All his ways are beautifully fatherly. Oh, wait a minute. Now we might be able to start begin going back to what Karl Barth said about what Hitler said about God and realize where the problem is. If you just say God is almighty... That doesn't define how he's almighty. But if you say God is first and foremost the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the way they have been from eternity past, they will be throughout eternity, the one who inhabits eternity, then all of a sudden we know how he uses his almightiness. Oh, it's divine! It's been confined! Oh, I love that. That is pure freedom for the Christian. That is pure joy. So what Michael Reeves says is that he's not, uh, before all things, he's a father, right? And not primarily creator or ruler. All his ways are beautifully fatherly. It is not that this God does being a father as a day job only to kick back in the evening to being plain old God. No, 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 no. It is not that he he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. No, he is the Father, and I love what Michael Reeves says right here. All the way down, he's a Father. That's who God the Father is. Thus, all that he does, he does as a Father. That is who he is. He creates as a Father, he rules as a Father, and on and on and on. And we could say the same about the Son. You ever think about this? The Son created as the Son. The Son rules and will rule and reign as the Son. The Son saves you and me as the Son. Oh, I like this. I like this. The Son accepts us into the Trinitarian fellowship within Him, not as if we are joining it as gods, but as those who are in Christ as the Son. Oh, we are heirs and co-heirs of Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we might be glorified together. He, as the Son, saves us. And we can say the same about the Holy Spirit. Wow, time is running, so let's just finish up here. There's so much more to be said. I hope I have just whetted your appetites to begin to seek to think about God rightly. From this vantage point, again, how do we make sure that we don't just get a rogue attribute? Or or we just think, well, yeah, God says you can't commit adultery because he says so, and I can't really tell you why. I can tell you why. Because God the Father will never commit adultery. Uh, let me put it this way, because that we think of the word adultery as marriage, so I want to not say it that way. He will never be unfaithful to the Son. And because that is who God is. Not an arbitrary, he didn't just make that up. That's like who he is. You and I should always be faithful in the covenant of marriage. Right? 
Uh, God didn't just say, don't be envious. But do you realize that there's no selflessness in the Godhead? The son's not like going, man, I wish I had a little bit of God the Father's, you know, originative authority. Uh-uh. Nope, nope, he just delights in the love of the Father. Who was envious? Oh, yeah, Satan. I will be like the Most High. There's nothing arbitrary in life at all. Let's finish with thinking about love real quick. God is love. And I've talked about people who write books about like love wins, whatever. There's a lot of different, the concept is just there, that love will win. Or, well, God's chief desire, because he is love, is my happiness. I mean, we see that from before the fall, before sin. But when you think about love, starting with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden it's what? It's defined and it's confined. God's not going to cheapen a perfect, holy love of the Trinity for your and my, and not pointing anybody specifically, by the way, <laughs> selfish concept of love. We're doomed to selfish concepts of love. But what does true love do? True love, when we look at it in the Trinity, number one, it's defined, it's confined, but true love frees me from that self-concept of love to truly be free, to truly love, which is marked by life and marked by selflessness. It's not arbitrary. It's who he is within the Trinity. I love that. I love it. It's so freeing. It's so freeing. It's also a terror to the wicked. Why? Because God will not redefine what perfection of fellowship is. It's already been defined as he has been from eternity past. It's a terror for the wicked. He will not stoop to our concepts. But it's joy to the Christian Because when you and I enter into Christ, what do we know about the Son? Christ is eternally, completely loving, or loved. And he is obviously loving too, but he is loved. He is all satisfying. Did you hear that? The Father is so satisfied with the Son, you and I never have to worry about whether we measure up, whether we can satisfy the Father, because by the way, you can't. But in Jesus I know I'm loved because he is so satisfying to the Father. He is such the Father's delight. Hebrew, uh, Ephesians, I believe it's, it's one or two says, he has, I think it's one, he has made us accepted in the beloved. Well, who's the much loved one? Oh, Jesus. When I realize who they are and then I know that I'm in him, rest, peace. What does that old hymn say? Stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. Stayed upon Jehovah, right? We're finding peace and rest. Where do you start in your thinking about God? I want to encourage you to start where Jesus started. He didn't walk around with some long list of abstract attributes that are true of God. Something they're not true, and we must know him in more of a fullness through that. But those are all defined. Are you getting it? Are you getting it? They're all defined. 
by him and his person being Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. How he works defines what omnipotence is and how he uses omnipotence. He uses it as a father would use it. How he's love and what love would be. How his wisdom is and how, what wisdom would do. It's all confined in him. We don't have to try to run around with these shadowy ideas of what that means. It's our God. A couple quick warnings. Number one, we also get, we, Trinitarians get this concept that, okay, God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then there's like God behind all that. No, no, no. God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's no God behind it. Right? Uh, again, I don't want to go into a huge thing on that. I just hope I've whetted your appetites to think about God more rightly. And we start from his persons. The Trinity is so important. It's wrapped up in everything we believe. And I could, I could take a whole lot more time to just start listing off the ways. Oh, it's so powerful. I'm going to say one thing. All right, just one. Do you realize that if God is not Trinity, he either created, and, and he's a communicable being, his creation of you would be a need that he needed to fulfill within himself. Oops. He's not God. He's not self-sufficient at this point. How about we switch it? If God is not Trinity, having perfect fellowship from eternity past and a communicable being who loves and needs fellowship, guess what he is? And he created you, but he actually didn't need any fellow, like he doesn't, he's not an actual communicable being, not that he needed you, but that he's a communicable being, having fellowship within himself, then he can't really love you. It, it would be like a marriage covenant where one side's like, I don't want marriage. I decided to do it. I'm in the covenant. I'm going to stay with the covenant, but I don't really love you. But if he's Trinity, and from eternity past, he's been a communicable being, loving and receiving love amongst himself, within himself, then he can truly create you in his image, not needing your fellowship because he already has it within himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But he can genuinely invite you in to his overwhelming life-giving love and selflessness and on. Isn't that powerful? Everything is wrapped up in who our God is. And it starts with the Trinity. Who and what is God? Let's go about our day rejoicing in his perfect fellowship amongst himself. Within, I should say this way, within himself. And that we, in Christ, are invited in to enjoy his love and fellowship to enjoy his sufficiency. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord. I pray that this doctrine of the Trinity would lead us to substance in our walk with Christ. Not just knowledge, not just fun little tidbits to run around and think about and talk to people about, but it would change the way we think and live and truly we would be more stayed upon Jehovah that we might be fully blessed, fully at peace and rest. I thank you.
I thank you. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.